Thank you for listening or watching our podcast. Baptism is a sign of the covenant and not our faith. We do not see baptism having its origins in the New Testament, but originating in the Old Testament. If this is true, then why does the New Testament so clearly seem to teach that one first professes their faith and then they are baptized? Where do we see baptism as a sign of the covenant rather than a sign of our faith? Where do we see that baptism is a picture of the gospel that shows us a warning and assurance of the Lord's blessing and his covenantal promises? If you are curious about these questions, please stay tuned and listen to our sermon on baptism. Well, last Sunday evening, we talked about the mission of Christ and the division that he brings, which is something when, when you think of Christ and his mission, you don't think of Christ as dividing. You think of Christ as unifying. You hear this in the context of the radical call of the kingdom where you have mother divided against daughter, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, son against father. This doesn't sound like a kingdom of peace that Christ brings. In fact, when we think back in covenant history and we think to Abram, how his name's changed to Abraham, father of a multitude, when he receives the sign of circumcision, that sign's given to the household. Even the bond servants are to receive that sign being designated as God's people. We think of the Passover with regulations, that nobody is to eat of the Passover unless they are circumcised. And the sign of circumcision is something that designates a family, a community set apart unto the Lord, a holy family. As Leviticus even warns Israel not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the land because it's uncircumcised. It's not holy unto the Lord. And so when we think of these references and we think of the family and we think of what Christ is doing, this sounds so contrary to his mission, doesn't it? It sounds like this is the opposite Christ and not the Messiah that we've longed for. But yet when we look deeper... We understand that as Christ speaks of, of the family, there's something else in this narrative that's kind of troubling. Because Christ says he has a baptism to undergo. Well, prior to his public ministry, when he, prior to facing Satan in, in the wilderness and the temptation, he's baptized by John the Baptist. So how can Christ say in the one hand of a baptism to undergo when he's been baptized? How can Christ speak of desiring to cast fire upon this earth and divide the family while claiming to also be the Messiah who brings shalom or peace or wholeness? How can this be? How can it be that Christ is even eager to cast fire upon the earth while he dreads his baptism? Well, as we consider these issues in the text, we'll address this in a series of questions. First, addressing the issue, hasn't Christ already been baptized? Secondly, why fire and division? What, what does this mean? And last, what about the church? What, what does this sign ultimately mean for us today? And so let's begin with, hasn't Christ already been baptized? Well, as I mentioned here in the context of Luke 12, Christ makes that controversial statement. In verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress 
until it is accomplished. You hear this and you, you sort of say, well, you already were baptized. When we think back to the baptism of Christ as Luke recalls it for us, Luke presents for us again that, that drama, as, as does Matthew. That as Christ enters history, comes to John the Baptist, we, we know that Christ is not just any teacher or any rabbi. He certainly is a teacher, certainly is a rabbi. He has disciples, we're called to be disciples. So we do need to see him as our teacher. There, there is certainly truth to that. But we can't just limit the mission of Christ as one who brings great teaching. Uh, that, that's not just who he is. And Luke makes that clear. Because when Luke begins, he, he reminds us who Jesus Christ is in the revelation of Christ to Mary. He is going to be called great, son of the most high. His name is Jesus, Yahweh saves. We also know that he will reign over the house of Jacob and his kingdom will have no end. This is the true embodiment the true fulfillment of Israel. This is a one who embodies and fulfills the very covenantal promise made to David of having the eternal heir. Luke wants to, to set this scene and, and have us understand. Jesus Christ is the son of Adam. Jesus Christ, son of David. Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills this, this very mission as the most high. So he's not just a teacher, even though we do need to listen to his teaching, but he is also redeemer, fulfiller, confirmer of the promises of God. But when Christ talks about this baptism, as Luke has already revealed this, and we know he's been baptized, he says he's come to cast fire upon the earth. Now, when you think about this fire, fire from heaven, we think of events like Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, we think of events of judgment uh, as Scripture speaks of the fire of the final judgment. And so when, when Christ says he, he longs to cast fire upon this earth, he's putting us in a mindset of what the prophets speak of and what Peter picks up on and what we have with the day of the Lord, these motifs in Scripture of fire judgment, uh, cleansing, destruction, burning it all away. And so you say, wait a minute, this, this is a Messiah. And in the context of this, as he's already been, been baptized, we, we say, but, but what about John's baptism? What does that mean? Well, as we continue to wrestle with this and hear this in the context of Luke 12, we go back to the opening of Luke's gospel. We, we, we understand the revelation of what Luke has made clear. But at the baptism of John, something very dramatic happens. Now John is one who stands up as a reformer of Israel and he calls them to repent, calls them to acknowledge the fallacy and folly of their tradition, how they haven't truly seen the true Messiah, which is something that's very relevant for us today, right? We want to get back to what the canon of Scripture is saying, something the Reformation was driving home. We want to know the canonical authoritative words of God and not just embrace the traditions of men. We want to take the traditions of men in light of the canonical true word of God. That's the reality of what's going on here and what John's calling Israel to do. Because you see, the Pharisees have their own tradition of men. And as they bring this tradition, they've lost sight of what Moses and the prophets have said about the Messiah. 
This is why I wanted to read uh, from this servant song with the assurance of Christ being the one where the Spirit endows him as we see the Holy Spirit come down from heaven. We have that endowment of the servant of the Lord. We have heaven itself open up as we think of Old Testament references of heavens open up. We have a reference back to, say, the flood where the Lord opens the heavens and his judgment pours down. We think of prophetic visions where heaven opens up and they see into heaven itself. And then we have the Father himself proclaiming, declaring that this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. You see, when we start drilling into this baptism of John, there's something profound going on. Even though Luke presents this just in a couple verses. Because it's presenting to us heaven opening up, endowing this one to do something unique. The voice declaring, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Echoes back to Genesis 22 verse 2. Where the Lord tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And who is the one who stands before Abraham and says, stop Abraham, and he provides a ram? Well, it's the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ. Because Isaac, as Hebrews says, that Abraham believed he'd receive him back in a resurrection, and it sort of symbolized that resurrection of moving to death and uh, receiving him back to life. Isaac is not the one who's going to bring in the kingdom. Only Christ, who's going to confirm it, and establish it. We think of Psalm 2, and we think of how there's a promise of how you have the Son who's going to rule over all things, the only begotten Son of God that the Father endows. Isaiah 42, the servant song of his teaching, his Torah, his instruction, uh, well, translated law in the English, but going out to the coastlands, to the ends of the earth. So when this event happens right here, we understand the significance of this event. But the dove descending as a Holy Spirit also has significance. Now we've mentioned in our study of Hosea how the dove, like Jonah, shows sort of this flighty, irrational bird that on the one hand wants to do the will of God and then doesn't do the will of God and it flutters around. And so the, the dove on, on, on the one hand is seen as a symbol of folly, foolishness. You know, like Paul talks about, always studying, never coming to a knowledge of truth. You're, you're waffling around. Or James, like in the waves of the sea, crashing around, not stable. So the dove has that imagery. But the dove also has an imagery of peace. And we think back to the imagery of the dove and the ark. And Noah releasing the dove in that very day, or on the day after the flood, weeks after the flood where the dove goes, comes back and brings an olive branch, right? So he's extending this peace offering, an olive branch through a peaceful bird. So these, these images of the flood start coming to our mind as well in this context. We think of Psalm 78, 23, of the Lord opening heaven and the windows of heaven opening and the floods coming down. And so this, this imagery of Christ is an imagery of the Father endowing the Son. This notion of judgment where we think of the themes of the flood. And we think about Christ then going into the wilderness to meet with Satan doing what? Challenging whether or not the Father is really pleased with the Son. 
Is the son really faithful is what Satan's seeking to challenge. So when we come back to Luke 12, when Christ is talking about his baptism, John's baptism is pointing to something else. Something else that is to transpire Christ. There, we can think of Isaac. We can think of the flood. We can think about peace offering. We can think about judgment. But Christ walks out of the water unscathed. So in Luke 12, Christ is speaking of another baptism where he's not going to emerge unscathed, so to speak. I mean, he's going to emerge triumphant. But he's going to experience the pain, the curse of death in hell itself. That's why Christ is distressed. John's baptism was setting him aside with a declaration, this is a faithful son, the one who will confirm the promises of God, who will endure the judgment of the day of the Lord and emerge triumphant. So when Christ here in Luke 12 is turning to the disciples and he's saying, listen, I'm a little focused, a little oriented to my mission, a little stressed out about what needs to happen. So yes, Christ feels the weight of what he is called to do. He's called to go to the cross, to experience death, to experience that fire judgment that he will have the authority to cast on another day. And so, yes, Christ was baptized. Yes, this baptism is pointing to the future of Christ's mission and mission of what he must do, his ministry. He must endure the cross of death, endure the fire judgment, and the manifestation of the day of the Lord. So why, why then is Christ is talking about this baptism? Why the fire and division? Because again, the, the Messiah brings shalom. He, he brings wholeness. He brings restoration. But, but this doesn't sound like restoration. It, it sounds like conflict. It sounds like, like turmoil. So what is Christ getting at here? Well, when we think about this judgment, and we think of the context of this fire, we also have to go back to that baptism. So when Christ mentions this baptism, he doesn't intend for us just to look at Luke 12. We've got to think back to what John said. John the Baptist, in his mission of reforming Israel, that's his call, the Elijah-like prophet, the one who brings new life, the, the forerunner to the Messiah's Malachi promises, that John, in his speech, talks about the axe being laid at the tree, in Luke chapter 3, verse 9, and what happens to the tree? It's thrown into the fire. Luke chapter 3, verse 16, Christ will baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire. We have also record of this, whereas Christ is traveling and turns his face to Jerusalem, we have the Samaritans who, who want Christ to stay with them. They think, well, the Jewish people, they're not so nice to their prophets. Why don't you just stay with us and, and we can build your kingdom here? Completely missing again the ministry of Christ and, and bringing us to a place of glory. Not just making the world more tolerable or the sage a little better, but bringing us to full glory. So Christ cannot accept that invitation. Well, what do the sons of thunder say? Lord, let's cast down fire upon them, right? So they understand this judgment motif associated with Christ's mission. They understand what John's saying. But in their understanding that right now that full fire judgment comes 
And it's not that Christ has to first endure that fire judgment to establish his authority to truly bring it as one who shows himself as faithful son of God, fulfilling the Lord's uh, mandates and requirements. But Christ himself makes reference to Sodom and Gomorrah and other things that have happened in covenant history. So the mission of Christ then, as he speaks of longing to bring this fire, desiring baptism, as he brings this and declares it, he's speaking about a definitive judgment. That's certainly the case. He's using day of the Lord language in Joel that Peter picks up in his Pentecost sermon. And this fire judgment that Christ speaks of, he cannot cast it until he is one who endures it. And so this is why Christ can't stay in the Samaritan village. He hasn't fulfilled the obligation set before him to to overturn what Adam has won for us as a son of Adam in Luke's genealogy. He must come as a faithful son, confirming and ratifying God's promises once for all. Confirming the canonical word as the incarnate word of God. He must do this very thing. And so we say, well, then, then why wait, right? Why, if Christ mentions he's distressed. So if, if we ever say, gee, I wonder if, if Christ can really feel the weight of this age. I wonder if Christ can really understand what it means to, to have moments of, of turmoil. <laughs> right here, Christ is confessing it. Not that this is sin, But it's Christ saying, the weight of what is set before me is overwhelming. You don't understand what I'm carrying within myself and what I know I have to endure. And praise be to God, as we're in Christ, we will never know what this is to endure. Because we will never endure hell. But Christ, being God, knows what hell entails. That this is something that always boggles my mind when I think of the doctrine of Christ. How, how does Christ enter history knowing what hell is and saying, I will endure it? It's, it's mind-boggling that our Lord is so committed that he will do this to redeem. But that's the weight of what Christ feels. So when Christ says, yes, I am a sympathetic priest, I can understand the, the turmoil of this age. Christ isn't making things up. He understands the turmoil and and the extent of sin far more than we can comprehend, even though he is without sin. He bears all the consequence of it, and he knows what that is. So Christ, when he's in this mission saying he's distressed, why? Because Christ knows Satan wants to derail this mission any way he can. And so we, we can say with the temptation of Christ, how hard is it for, for God to say no? Well, he truly took on the flesh. What is Satan doing? Basically, Satan's saying, look at you, man, you're a mess. Your father is sending you to, to the cross to have the kingdoms? I can give it all to you right now. Why don't you back off, you bow to me, be my friend? We're good. Hey, why don't you show the glory? Just jump off the temple. Everyone's going to bow to you and say you're great. Come on. Why, why go through all this stuff? It's, it's absurd. Look what your father's doing to you. This is a loving father. You're hungry. You're starving. Just come on. You're, you're God. Make some food. Why, why do you put up with this? Right? So you start understanding the force of this. You see the temptation of what Christ could do. 
Because Satan's right. Christ is God. He, he can make sons of Abraham out of these stones, as John the Baptist has said. He can certainly make food out of the stones. That's not a challenge for him. And so Satan's basically saying, seize the glory you're entitled to have. But Christ here is saying, I know that's not my mission. I know Satan's always going to be challenging whether or not I truly am the faithful son of God. But my mission is to go to the cross. And so when Christ wants to go to the cross, we say, okay, does Christ really understand this? Well, Christ goes on. And in his traveling to Jerusalem, what, 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 is, what is the problem that, that he faces? Well, Christ is one that as he turns to Jerusalem and he knows what's going to happen. This is a place that doesn't embrace his people. This isn't a place that has come to embrace uh, the prophets. This is a place that has killed and executed the prophets. Christ understands what his mission is. Luke 19, he actually weeps over the city uses the language of the Exodus and God gathering his people together. And so Christ still has this compassion. So why this baptism in fire then? Well, as Christ is, is laying this out, he's laying out the fullness of what baptism truly means. So often when, when we think of baptism, we think of the symbolism of this water, but we don't understand the, the true depths of our redemption been trying to read scriptures that, that communicate this, understanding the family unity, understanding the, the reality of that. But the, the depth of baptism is really a picture of where you have Noah in the flood, and you think of Peter picking up on this, where you have those in the ark who are the eight that pass safely through the waters, those outside the ark who do not. The Egyptians baptized in the sea. You know, they're overwhelmed by it. They do not become those who are vindicated, Israel, vindicated by it. So when Christ speaks of this fire baptism, Christ is speaking of confirming the word of God in a definitive way. That he's not undergoing merely a baptism of water, because again, when you think about the, the Hebrew mindset, water is uh, basically where the realm of the dead go. They go into the sea. They go into the bottomless abyss of nothingness. Uh, this is where Jonah's prayer becomes significant, right? He goes to the bottom of Hades, at the bottom of nothingness, and emerges triumphant. Well, that's what Christ is laying out. He's the one who isn't just going into the sea. He wants us to understand he's firsthand going to experience the day of the Lord. And so baptism becomes a symbolism of, of the cross. It's, it's a symbol of what he is to endure. The endurance of the day of the Lord facing definitive death and, and the sanction of hell at his father's hand. So now when Christ is speaking of this fire and division, and he mentions this, well, what does that mean? Well, like John the Baptist. Don't think we have Abraham as our father. Don't think we have the prophets, therefore we're okay. John the Baptist saying, you need to embrace the Messiah. And that's what Christ is saying. You need to embrace the substance of the covenantal promise. You can't say, oh, we have the tradition on our side. Oh, we have the fathers on our side. Oh, we have this or oh, we have that. Christ is saying, if you are not embracing Christ, you do not have life, period. 
And so when Christ is calling out to the families, he's saying, look, as a consequence of this, you might be put out of the synagogue. Families might be divided. Uh, families may not embrace the reality that I'm the Messiah. But the reality is Christ is saying embracing the Messiah, as we heard last Sunday evening, is going to have a cost. The cost of following Christ may mean the cost of the comfort of family, commitments, and benefits. That's what Christ is saying. So we, we can't take this. We have to hear the symbolism, fire, baptism, these sorts of things, and understand Christ's, uh, Christ's essence of what he means by this. The essence of this statement is that there is going to potentially be divisions. You may have to walk away from the family. You might be put out of certain synagogues. That might be the reality of what happens. But the call is to embrace Christ. So this brings us in lastly, what about the church? What, what, is, what does this mean for us? Well, I do believe John's baptism is a unique baptism. I don't believe that John's baptism is the same baptism as Christian baptism. I believe John is signaling to us the end of, of the old era, the, the Old Testament of the promised Messiah coming. He's a prophet who makes the transition to the New Testament era in a unique time when Christ walks on this earth and is calling Israel truly to reform, uh, great awakening, revival, whatever language you, you want to say. And this is why Christ says you need to discern the time at hand. You can discern the world, but you need to discern the significance. One needs to embrace the Messiah and how certain it is as Christ stands in their midst as a Messiah that Israel did not expect to see. And so Christ knows that as he goes to Jerusalem, this place is, is going to reject him and not going to embrace him. But there's things we, we have to know and think about the pictures of this baptism and salvation and redemption that is pictured. We go back to Noah, as there's references, I'd argue here, echoes back to it, echoes with John's baptism, certainly heaven opening up and the windows of heaven, dove, peace, these sorts of things going on. But the subtlety of what's going on is we think about Noah in the ark and how the Lord is faithful to his redemptive promise. He does save the family unit as he does with Abraham with the sign of circumcision. We think of Moses and the Exodus people delivering Israel out of Egypt, going through the sea, passing safely through. Again, context of family. We think about Christ as he undergoes this and as he weeps over the city and he desires what? To gather them together. And so Christ, as we look at this ministry of Christ, we, we see this conflict and, and the nature of, of how we can't fully comprehend who he is. On the one hand, he knows that he must endure judgment. On the other hand, he desires to undergo this, this exodus event of bringing his people together. And yet he warns that there's going to be divisions. And so what do we do with this? Well, when we think about this nature of what is promised, the assurance is that as we take hold of Christ by faith, he is our Redeemer. And we need to believe that as Christ symbolizes this reality, we're taking hold of the substance of, of what God has given us as what was promised in the Old Testament as our realization. We have 
our Redeemer. And yes, there may be a cost, and yes, we, we may end up losing uh, some of the benefits of this age in following Christ. Maybe, maybe not. Christ isn't guaranteeing that. Again, he's saying, be aware of the cost of discipleship. Following me doesn't always mean everything in life's going to be easy. But the assurance is that as Christ goes and endures the sanction and punishment of the day of the Lord, we don't have to endure that day. And so when we look at the, the book of Acts and where we look at how these baptisms take place, one believes household baptized. We think of even what we heard in the reading of the law this morning. We read in the household codes. The Apostle Paul exhorts children to obey their parents as covenant members. So when, when we hear of Christ talking about the division of the family, he's not saying this is something that we need to strive to be the norm. In other words, if we're not always in conflict within our family, well then something's wrong. That's not the intention of what Christ is saying. What Christ is saying is saying, understand my mission. Not everyone within the Pharisaical tradition or the tradition is going to embrace me. Because they've derailed the tradition from what Moses and the prophets have said. They've misunderstood the tradition. But here I am, as the one who confirms the words of Moses and the prophets. And the intention is that ideally as we function together as families in Christ, as a church family, we order our lives under his authority as our Redeemer. We see him as the one who has moved us from death to life in his work. And as he has moved us from death to life in his work, this means we also train up our children in the Lord. Now, does this mean every child's necessarily regenerate? Does it mean every child necessarily embraces the fullness of the covenant blessings? Well, we, we don't know that necessarily. But as we extend that uh, that judgment for one another as, you know, we, we are members who come to church, we come willingly, we say, hey, it seems that this person certainly is in Christ, right? We extend that. We don't know certainly if the Spirit's at work, but we extend that benevolent judgment. And so it is with our children. When the Apostle Paul exhorts us to raise our children, to encourage them and to exhort them, what do we do? Your child's been baptized. Your child's been set apart unto the Lord. You are a child in covenant with the great God of heaven. You are called to embrace this God and to live out these covenantal obligations to, you know, live in obedience to this God as we are called to do. Now, we don't do it perfectly, but yet we're called to do this. And so we exhort our children to do this very thing. And so the purpose then, when we look at these household baptisms in the book of Acts, we look at circumcision in the Old Testament, we hear Christ giving this exhortation. What is Christ fundamentally saying? If we're going to be able to discern the times, we have to be able to discern who our Savior is. And as we discern who our Savior is, we have to discern what it means to live for him. And this is simply how we encourage and exhort our children to live us out. And so in conclusion then, why is there such strong language that Christ uses? Why is Christ speaking of fire baptism and, and fire and judgment associated with his 
baptism. Why is he so eager to cast fire on this earth? Well, it's not that Christ is some trigger-happy goon desiring to destroy everything that's been created. The other side of the cross is coming in the full consummate glory. And thinking of that consummation of the full glory, what, what does that mean? Well, one of the great themes in Luke's gospel is also the, the banquet scenes. Dining with one another. Sharing a meal with one another. Beautiful, beautiful scene that Christ uses in a series of parables. So when Christ is eager to bring this judgment, well, what does it mean? Christ, on the one hand, is eager to put down all the rebellion. That's certainly true. But Christ is also eager to bring us into his rest, to bring us into fellowship with him. And so this, this imagery of Christ weeping over Jerusalem is something that, that is mind-boggling. Here's a city that's going to send him to the cross after a kangaroo court, and yet he weeps over the city. I mean, you think about that in Luke's gospel. If somebody's going to send me to death and I know that's my fate, I don't think I'm going to be weeping for them and desiring their salvation in the weakness of my flesh. But this is what we see in our Savior. And as we see the compassion of our Lord, we shouldn't take this text and rip it out of context and make it mean something it doesn't. Christ is saying, understand and discern what it means to follow after Christ. Embrace your Savior. Be content to be one that finds that quiet, peaceful life in this age where we raise up our children in the Lord. We seek to be disciples of Christ, bringing glory to his name. And we find the joy, and hopefully we truly find the joy that we have the privilege of living for Christ. I always remember Godfrey closing lectures many times, and I've cited this on more than one occasion. But you think about all the things John Calvin has written, all the reading he has done, the great works he has done, his contribution of truly understanding mystical union. And you think about all the commentaries. And Godfrey always recalled for us, where, where does Calvin go? Calvin goes with it's enough to live and die in the service of the Lord. I don't want to elevate him up as some super saint or something. But that certainly is a mantra, isn't it? Then when we think about the implications of that, it's not about our accomplishments. It's not about what we do for Christ. But it's understanding we have a privilege. We get to live and die in the service of the great king. As a people who have been redeemed from death and hell itself. As a people who have been moved from death to life. Let us find our contentment then as we live out the gospel within, before the world, the context of our home, context of our family, adults, all children alike, seeing the privilege we get to live for the great King as His redeemed. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archived sermon series on our website 
urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.